Well, again, uh, good morning. I'm uh, grateful to be here among all of you, getting to worship alongside you and sing songs and praising our Savior. We'll continue in this worship now as we turn to the Word and dive back into the book of Philippians. Today we'll be in chapter 3, starting in verse 17, and we'll end up going to verse 1 of chapter 4. So we are wrapping up this series. After today, we're just going to have two more weeks in chapter 4. And then we will have completed our our walk through, our journey, our study in this book of Philippians. And it's been a joy to do this. I have personally learned a lot through this study. And I hope all of you have as well. And as we're wrapping up, Right, we are seeing some of Paul's final teachings, his final exhortations to this church in Philippi. What he really wants them to, to remember. Last week, Eric kicked us off um, in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 3. And Paul is writing to these believers and encouraging them to continue to run this race. Right, we, We've talked about living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, and this is a difficult journey. But Paul says this in verse 13 and 14, that, that Paul was forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This upward call, it truly is a difficult journey. It really is a race. Eric gave us uh, his, his imagery of cross-country, where, where he ran um, all throughout college as well. And he had success in it because, like Paul, he could forget what lay behind him and continue to press on to what was in front of him. And so thinking about his story, I thought about I'd share my story of cross-country, where I also ran nowhere near to the level of Eric, and I absolutely hated it the whole time. I do not have that mental fortitude to continue to to run when your legs are aching, when your lungs are burning, and your feet just hurt. I just want to stop. But I ran cross-country for six years, and so I think, what was going through my brain that made me do something that I absolutely despised? And I think about that, and I, I thought of two reasons. And first was I had a goal in mind. My goal was different than Eric. Eric had, had the ability to just look at the finish line and run towards it. That wasn't good enough for me. I, I looked forward to other sports that I truly wanted to play, and so I used cross-country to prepare for them. So I suffered through the fall of cross-country so that I'd be better prepared for basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring. I had a goal in mind that kept me going. And the second thing is who I got to run with. One of my best friends, Michael, ran cross-country, and he was much better than I was. But in practice, instead of, like, pushing himself, he would just run beside me. And so I'm running, dying, can't catch my breath, and somehow Michael is talking the whole time. I don't know how this man does it. He was this endless spew of words. He'd be telling jokes, trying to make me laugh while I'm just suffering, He'd talk about video games, he would tell stories, and he would just talk the whole time. And he made this miserable experience of running enjoyable. And so I tell this story, right, because we're thinking about this race that we're called to run as believers. This upward call of God. And what keeps us going? How do we endure? And Paul kind of answers that question here in our passage today. 
where similarly, as believers, we have a goal in mind. And that goal is that we have a kingdom that is coming. We have heaven to look forward to. That, that in the midst of sufferings, right, there is something, there is glory to come. We have a goal. Secondly, we have people to run with. We have examples to look to. We have people that we can run after and run alongside. And so today in this passage, again, Paul holds up two examples for us. The first that we're going to see is these enemies of the cross. It's an example that we want to avoid. And the second example are, are an example of what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. And, and this lifestyle is what, is what is held up for us to emulate with our own lives. And as we live together and collectively as citizens of heaven, we run this race together with endurance. And so these two examples, they kind of form our big idea for today. This idea, it's really a main application for us to take away. That, that I hope that we all would follow Christian examples who reject worldly desires and rejoice in our coming Savior. Would we not follow the enemies of the Christ who seek worldly pleasures? And would we live as citizens of heaven who eagerly await our coming Savior? So let's go ahead and um, dive into this passage. We'll read it, and then we'll start uh, explaining it and thinking through it. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me to Philippians, we're in chapter 3. If you don't have one, there, there's one in the pew, and we'll be on pages 922 and 923. So picking up in verse 17, Paul is writing. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, I ask that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, would you uh, give me the words to say? Would we uh, seek to, to let this word change our lives? Would, it be, would we be open to conviction by the Spirit? Would we be willing to, um, to live the difficult life as a citizen of heaven and look forward to and long for your return and your arrival? Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Amen. All right, so we're first going to focus on this example that Paul tells us to avoid, right? These enemies of the cross that we see in verse 18 and 19. In verse 18, Paul warns the Philippian believers of these enemies of the cross of Christ. And I want to think, who are these enemies? Right? When I hear the word, someone who is an enemy of, a cro of the cross, I would think of people who are opposed to Christianity. Right? They, they might even be people who are persecuting the church. 
However, if we look in the context of this passage, Paul is warning Philippian believers to not follow the example of these enemies of the cross. Right? So these enemies, they're not people who are opposed to the church. They're not uh, seeking to harm believers. But they're people that are attempting Philippian believers to live in a different way. It's possible they could be Judaizers where they're trying to tempt people to, to live in adherence to the, like the Old Testament law as a means to salvation. But most likely, these enemies of the cross are actually people who claim to be believers. They participate in church life. They're even good friends with other people in the church. But inwardly, they don't believe the gospel, and the gospel hasn't taken root in their heart. I think these people use Christianity as an excuse or like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card to continue to live lives of worldly sinfulness. And so they are enemies of the cross because they belittle Christ's sacrifice and they dishonor the name of Jesus by claiming Christian freedom to live lives of worldliness. And this truly can be a temptation. Right, if you see someone who says, look, I am good with God, I know he loves me, but I can still live for worldly desires and get everything I want, that's a temptation to follow. I think we, we can all be tempted to look to the world and say, that looks fun, I would rather live this way, and we pursue that path while saying, but God still has forgiven me, so I can do whatever I want. So this is a tempting, tempting path to follow, and I would encourage you to think as we start looking at this example of the enemies of the cross, inspect your own hearts. I think it's easy sometimes when we're going through Scripture and they talk about idolatry that we don't really have temples around us, so that's not a struggle for us, so we can tune out. Or even Judaism and legalism, right? We don't really struggle with adhering to the law anymore. But I think this temptation to live lives that reflect the world while claiming to be a believer can be a temptation for us, right? There are so many churches that are approving of sins that are condemned in Scripture. So we should all be on guard for enemies of the cross. And so what does their life look like? We'll look to verse 19 for this. First, we see that, that their end is destruction. So do not follow their example. The end is only death. And we'll see what their lives look like. That there's a pattern to, to them, right? They, they first uh, begin to sin. They give in to their sin. Then they seek to justify their sin. And then ultimately they only live for their sin. So the first uh, kind of step of this path of an enemy of the cross is from verse 19 where it says that their God is their belly. This is a little bit of an odd phrase. Paul's not saying that these people are, are working through the sin of gluttony. Right? He, they're not tempting people to come eat food. This word belly can be translated as appetites or cravings. And so what he's saying is that these people are giving in to every desire that they have. When they want something, even if it's sinful, they give into it. They're, they're serving their human and their worldly, fleshly desires. The problem is that sin never satisfies Right? And, and sin was to continue to take you down this path, continuing to try to find uh, a way to satisfy your cravings. 
And, and sometimes we can, we can take this first step into sin, and it's kind of in a gray area, right? Maybe the Bible's not super clear on one type of sin, and so we step through that, and that leaves us dissatisfied. And, and we continue to follow this path, and Satan can continue to pervert our desires until you get to this place where your conscience knows you are in the wrong. But sin can so easily entangle you. And so instead of seeking to to throw off this entanglement, instead of seeking to repent from our sins, people want to justify sin. And that's the second thing that an enemy of the cross does. It says that they glory in their shame. People, instead of, of exposing sin for the shameful act that it is, they want to justify it. They even celebrate it. And we see this all throughout our culture today, that sin is displayed as something good. Vices are displayed as virtues. To just name a couple, think about how promiscuity and sexual relationships in our culture, they're displayed as fun and a sign of attractiveness. Or how about the sin of selfishness? This is encouraged as proper self-care or self-respect. Think of transgenderism, right? This is touted as and celebrated as ultimate freedom for people. Greed can be displayed as a hard-working lifestyle. Lust seems never to be condemned in our, in our society. It's described as natural urges that ought to be explored. Abortion is described as a right. Think about sinful pride. This is excused as self-confidence. And then the denial of the one true God is viewed as intellectual advancement and freedom rather than folly. Satan is so good at at twisting words, at, at allowing people to justify however they are living. And if you never look to God, if you never look to Scripture, you'll never see what sin for what it truly is. It's a shameful act that is a direct affront against an almighty God. And so because Scripture brings conviction, many people want to deny its bearing on our lives today. And instead of looking to Scripture and feeling that conviction, they look to the world. And this is the last step of an enemy of the cross. In verse 19, they set their minds on earthly things. And as I just said, when you look to the world, you can justify all sorts of behavior. And also when you look to the world, these sins that are advertised, they look fun. They look inviting. There's promises that that's where joy and happiness are found. The problem is, is that we read in verse 19, the end of this mindset is destruction. Romans 8 has some similar language. It's Romans 8, 6 through 8. Paul is still writing and he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Scripture tells us that if you were living in this sin, if you were setting your mind on worldly things, if you were living for worldly pleasures, then you are a hostile enemy to God. And the end of taking that position against God is death and destruction. The truth is, though, is that right? We were all on this path. 
We have all deserved the wrath of God because we chose to glory in our shameful sin rather than perfectly glorify God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and as such, we deserved just punishment for that sin, namely death. Yet while we were still hostile in mind, while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us on the cross. Right? That he paid the punishment that we deserved. He took our place on the cross and he died for us. But three days later, he was raised again to life. And now, because he has defeated sin and defeated death, if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, then we can have our sins forgiven. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there. We're not just forgiven. We don't just have to avoid God's punishment. Not only does he excuse us of our sin, he then adopts us into his family. And as sons and daughters of God who are loved by God, we are citizens of heaven. And a citizen of heaven should live differently than those who live in the world. And now we get to look at examples that Paul holds up that we should seek to follow. Namely, again, what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. So we'll backtrack just for a second to verse 17, where Paul is, again, he's he's displaying an example, namely himself. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. I don't want us to think, is this egotistical for Paul to tell people to follow his example. And I would say no for, for three reasons. The first, um, when, he, when he says this, you know, imitate me, he, he also says this in like 1 Corinthians 11, where he's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul's not trying to make copies of himself. Rather, he is trying to uh, use his life as an example for what it means to follow Jesus. So Paul's saying, follow me only in as much as I am following Jesus Christ's example. So his example is one of humility and servitude that follows Christ. And secondly, Paul's not saying that he's the only person who can be followed. Here in Philippians, we've seen he's lifted up examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus as worthy men to to follow their example. And then finally, Paul's call for people to imitate him is not a call for popularity, Right, do you really want to emulate Paul's life? I'd imagine what some Philippians thought when they read this letter and they say, Paul's writing and he says, imitate me. And you go, Paul, you're in prison right now. Right, right, Paul's call to follow him could lead to imprisonment, to persecution, to death. Paul's call is a call to die to yourself, a call to take up your cross and follow daily. This is not an easy thing to do. So Paul's not wanting to to gain popularity. He wants people to become more like Jesus Christ, to share in his sufferings and live and, and, and show what it means to live as citizens of heaven. And so Paul is holding up his life, I think, is saying, look, Christ has ascended. And so now use my life as a physical, practical example for what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And so now, similarly, since Paul is now gone, God has given us the church where we have physical, practical examples today for what it looks like to follow after Jesus in a similar way that Paul did. 
And so my question for us today is, who do you have in your life that you see pursuing Christ that you can seek to emulate? Who do you respect for the way that they follow Jesus, and would you like to, to follow that example in your life? I'd encourage you to go to those people and, and ask and seek to spend time with them. Have the boldness to go up and ask what, what spiritual disciplines they have in place in their life as they are seeking to be sanctified and molded into the image of Christ. Because the Christian life, it truly is a hard journey. It's a marathon. And if we don't have examples to follow, and if we don't have brothers and sisters to run alongside us, I think it's easy to give up. So truly, think about who is there in your life that you see who you want to follow their example and pursue those people. If you don't have someone in mind, I would encourage you to continue to participate in church. It truly is a gift from God that we have a body of believers that we can see examples and follow. And so as you're thinking of people who you can uh, follow their example, I also then want to turn and say, who are you being an example for? How is your life one that can be emulated and followed? How are you setting an example for what it means to run this race and pursue Christ? I talked about, Paul, that it's, it's not egotistical to set an example for people. If you are seeking to do good things to get noticed, that's an issue. But if you are just running after Jesus Christ and you are falling, falling in love with him and you want other people to know this Christ, the friend that you have found in Jesus, then invite people into your life. Right? Let people come into your life and, and, and see how the gospel has transformed ways that you do things, ways you love your wife, ways, ways you serve your neighbors. Truly, discipleship, it doesn't have to be sitting down with, with seminary textbooks and reading through. Seeing how the gospel is displayed in a life teaches people sometimes more than just sitting there and listening to a lecture. Right? That the age or the, the saying of more is caught than taught, it's true. And we all have, have ways we can, we can be an example for people. We all have more life experience or more spiritual maturity than someone else. And so seek to share that with other people. Right? If you are our older saints here at church, you have stories of what it means to follow Christ for decades, to persevere and continue to seek Jesus. If you're a family here at church, then you can invite people into your life and show what it looks like to raise children while seeking to display the gospel to them. Young professionals, we have stories how we are making career decisions, life decisions, while also thinking about how we can make an impact for the gospel. How we can pursue and be involved in a, in a local church, and sometimes that's more important than a higher paying salary. College students, you have an example for why your life looks so much different than what the rest of the world thinks college should be like. So we have a position to be examples for other people. So would you set an example with your life? Seek for those around you to look more like Jesus because of the way you're leading your life. And so what should this example look like? How should we then live examples that are worthy to be followed. And this is now getting into verse 20 and, and 21. So we'll reread those. 
Paul is saying again, in contrast to these enemies of the cross, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So let's look at this example of citizens of heaven and how that differs from the enemies of the cross. So first, instead of letting our God be our desires and appetites and giving into to sinful fleshly desires, would we, as citizens of heaven, humbly resist sin? Would we resist temptation? And it's important to remember, right, we don't avoid sinning so that we can become citizens of heaven. Rather, we already are and have been declared citizens of heaven. We are sons and daughters of the Most High, and as such, we want to seek to display what our Heavenly Father is like. Right? We want to live lives that reflect heaven. We want to be citizens of heaven. The Philippian church would have understood this concept of citizenship well. Philippi was a, a Roman colony, and as such, people who lived in Philippi had the chance to attain Roman citizenship. And this would have come with rights and a status, and it's a sense of pride. And so the Philippians would want to live in a manner that, that displays Ro Roman citizenship well to those around them. And so Paul's using that idea to say, well, now we also need to live as citizens of heaven, and that should have a bearing on our life. And the first thing that that should look like is we look different from the world. We resist temptation. I want to hone in on this phrase of the lowly bodies. This can be literally translated as bodies of humiliation. And it's pointing back to the famous passage in, in uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, where we see that through Christ's humility and servitude that God will exalt him and glorify him, Right? And so similarly here, as we humble ourselves, as we have lowly bodies, one day God will exalt and glorify those as well. And I think there's, there's two ideas with hu humility. The first can be you're seeking the needs of others. But the second idea of, of having a body of humiliation is recognizing that I don't need and I don't deserve everything that I want. Right, That though my body and my fleshly desires are saying, I want this worldly thing, would I humble myself and choose not to grant every desire? I choose not to give into all my appetites and cravings. And I will be obedient and reflect what it means to be a citizen of heaven because I have glory to look forward to. And as I humble my body, I have that promise that one day I will have a glorified body that reflects the resurrected glorious body of Christ. And so this is our second point. Instead of only having the vanity of sin to glory in, right, glorying in shame as the enemies of the cross do, as citizens of heaven, we have true glory to rejoice in and look forward to. The end of sin is shame and destruction, but the pleasures at the right hand of God are eternally satisfying. As citizens of heaven, we await something that is real and that will never fade away. Our lowly bodies will be transformed to reflect the glorified, resurrected body of Christ. I think that this has a great bearing on our lives. It's a sense of encouragement, but especially for our older saints. 
right? Thinking that one day when we have glorified bodies, we will never miss a worship service again because of physical ailments. Back pain, dizziness, bad weather, other physical ailments will never prevent you again from worshiping our Lord and Savior when we have glorified bodies. And this is a, a gift from, from our God that, that he will glorify our bodies, that we get to rejoice in that. But ultimately what we are truly joyful about is the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. That with glorified bodies we will be able to withstand the glory of God. We get to behold him face to face. We get to worship the lamb who was slain. We will see him exalted on his throne above all. We will live in the city of our king and he will be the light to his people. This coming glory is something to rejoice and celebrate in, not the shame of sin. And thinking about coming glory moves us to the final characteristic of a citizen of heaven. Instead of dwelling on earthly things like an enemy of the cross, we as believers set our minds on heavenly things. And so would we cast our minds to heaven and eagerly and joyfully await the Savior who is to come? Colossians 3, 1 through 4 has also similar language to this idea of setting our minds on heavenly things. Paul is writing and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we are commanded to set our minds on heavenly things. And I think this does two things for us. The first is that by looking to God and looking to Scripture, we accurately see and understand sin. This moves us to personal conviction of our own sin, and it also teaches us how we should stand firm on the word of God in opposition to the world. And the second thing that a heavenly mindset does is it gives us endurance and encouragement to continue to run this race of the Christian life. On that first point, as citizens of heaven, we are bound by the commands of our king, We don't let the world dictate what is good and acceptable and true. We hold to Scripture, right? God's view of marriage, the sanctity of all human life, the commands of Christ, the Word is what we hold to, and it is what we are bound to. We don't seek to justify sin, but we will hold to the authority of the Word in our own lives. And this may be unpopular, It's a hard thing to do, but as we continue to cast our minds to heaven, there is great encouragement to be had. And this is the second benefit of a heavenly mindset, encouragement and endurance. We can endure because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. We are encouraged because we will be given new glorified bodies with which we can worship our God for eternity. We endure because our efforts for striving for God's glory will be recognized and honored by our Heavenly Father. We're encouraged because ultimately we get to live in the presence of our God. So cast your minds 
heavenward. Some people say that as you look to heaven, it causes you to be disassociated from the world. And I would say that I think correct reflection on heaven does the exact opposite. As we think upon and reflect upon and rejoice and await our Savior, that means we are actively thinking about the coming day of the Lord. When Christ will judge people, right? There, there, there will be his elect who he has saved and those who have never bowed the knee to Christ as king. And they will be judged. And, and so as we are thinking and turning our minds heavenward, we should be motivated to go to those around us. And also, as we hopefully joyfully await the return of our Savior, when we go with this gospel, this good news to the world, our joy will be genuine. And I want to ask you, do you genuinely long for and are you joyfully awaiting the return of our Savior? Does the thought of heaven bring you joy or are you satisfied enough with your own life that you don't really eagerly await our Savior? Do you like your own kingdom more than the kingdom of God? And if that's the case, possibly, the idea of heaven might seem boring to you. That's a crazy thing to say here in church. But if your mindset, or when you think of heaven, if you think that's just sitting on clouds and singing songs on a harp, I would say that's a biblically inaccurate view of heaven. And thankfully so, because that does seem a little boring to me. But I would encourage you to go study the scriptures, look and see and learn what we can know about heaven. Because there is much joy to be found. This will provide endurance and encouragement to continue on in this race. And if you have questions or, or you need to help on where to start, come talk to me. Talk to another member. Because we want to be a church. We want to live as citizens of heaven who are eagerly awaiting our Savior. I, I want to encourage all of us, myself included, that would we let biblically informed reflection on heaven or accurate thoughts about heaven, would that become a spiritual practice in our life? I think one mark of a mature believer is one who is heavenly minded, who is awaiting his Savior, who is longing for heaven, who can, like Paul say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. A proper view of eternity gives us endurance through hard times. It provides us joy in the present, and it gives us a proper perspective and understanding of the need for missions. And so finally, just, just to wrap up, I want to use verse 1 of chapter 4 to be our conclusion and final encouragement. Where Paul writes and he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And so to King's Church today, my brothers and my sisters, whom I love, whom I enjoy being with, who I am proud of, would we stand firm in the gospel? Would we joyfully await our coming Savior? Would we reject worldliness and not follow the example of the enemies of the cross, but live as citizens of heaven who long for the kingdom of God? And know that this end is coming Christ is returning. With all power, he will return. He will establish his kingdom and he will glorify your body to live with him forever in eternity. 
And with that, would you, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have the, the sure fact that you will return. God, I pray that we think upon that and dwell upon that and long for that. Lord, would we leverage our lives for the advancement of the gospel? Would we be willing to, to have hard conversations? Would we be uh, mature enough to set examples with our life for what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Father, we thank you for the example we have in Christ, the example we have in Paul, and the example we have in other believers. And would we all with endurance run this race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we love you. We ask, would you no longer tarry? God, would you come and establish your rule and reign here on earth? And it is in your name we pray. Amen.